We're gonna be going to the book of Mark, chapter five, in just a minute, but I wanted to start with that video um, because we're gonna be talking about faith today, and many of you probably know that's Rachel Held Evans, and she came to our church three years ago to speak, um, and she did our Dill Lecture series, and she passed away two weeks ago. Um, her funeral was yesterday. She's had an impact on so many people's lives, and um, our, our former associate pastor, Brad Good, posted a really eloquent post on Facebook um, after we had heard that she had passed, and he said, you know, that I, he, he was a picture of them eating lunch with Christine and Tripp and the kids, and, and they were out to eat, and he said, um, you know, there are people in which can change your lives even if you disagree with them, and Rachel had done that for him, he said. And there's so many of her books that have influenced people. I know Brianna was majorly impacted by her book, Searching for Sunday, as she was learning to engage her own faith. And so I just wanted to celebrate her life and give thanks for her and what she did here at Dolphin Way. And also that video is perfect for us as we talk about faith today. As we talk a little bit about what, what faith means in our lives, the nature of faith. Your, your bulletin says we're going to be in James. Um, that's actually in a couple weeks from now. Alice out of the office and I forgot to change it. I apologize. So we're going to hold off on James until the end of June. Um, but we are going to talk about faith. Um, and it will play into that series on the book of James we'll do for five weeks beginning at the end of the month. Um, but I wanted to lay the groundwork for what, what faith is, how we talk about faith, and what it means for our lives. And so thank you, worship team, for all that you've done for us this morning. Justin, thank you for leading us this week. Brittany is with the youth in Orlando, and so are a few of our other band members. So thank you all for bringing us into this place of, of worship and being able to hear what God has to say to us now from the Bible. All right, so Mark chapter five, it'll be on the screen here behind me. You can read along with me. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded with him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I would be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people gathered around you, against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your fate has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, do not be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. 
when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and he said to them, why is all this commotion? Why are you wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And, they put, and he, after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him. And he went in to where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old and they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen, amen. When I was in youth group, when I was growing up and then throughout college, I feel like every time that there was a retreat, like our students are on now, um, we always end up doing like team building exercises. Have you ever done like low ropes course or high ropes course, like the team building exercises? Have you as a, at your company ever done like these little games to help you? You're supposed to like build camaraderie where like the, on one of them that we did with our confirmands last fall, they all had to stand on the log. They were not allowed to speak and they had to reorder themselves without speaking based on the, year, the month in which they were born. And they couldn't get off the log, right? If you get off the log, you have to start all over again. Basically, the floor is lava, right? Remember that game, floor is lava? So, so they had to reorganize themselves without speaking, and they had to learn how to do that. These team-building exercises, right? There's some of them that are like really a high wall that's flat, and everybody has to get to the other side. Have you ever done that one? where people have to kind of push you up and you get over and maybe you try to figure out the most creative way. Well, the one that we did every time, every time there's team building exercises going on, we always had the trust fall. Have you ever done a trust fall? I thought about maybe demonstrating it this morning, like just being up here, but it's kind of high. And I don't know which one of you I trust. I'm just kidding, I trust all y'all. Y'all be great. The trust fall is real basic, right? So what you do is you get in a line you get like six people or eight people, and you all put your arms out like this, and you interlock them. So if I'm across from you, you put your arms between mine, right? And so it'd be like a set of arms, set of arms, you know, eight sets of arms. And, um, and, and there was a person who's high up, about the stage, maybe even higher. And they're supposed to, without looking, like lean back and just fall into the arms. And the person's supposed to catch them. There's an easier version of this where you just stand on the floor and somebody falls back and you catch them. Um, um, But that's the simple version. Then they take you up to this platform and you're supposed to fall all the way back. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done the trust fall? I I have never seen the trust fall not work. It is every time we've done it, I I was skeptical at first. And then I was like, oh, it, it always works. I've heard stories of somebody saying that, you know, there's somebody who's up on the pedestal, and and they might have been being rude before, and so the people just decided to take a step back. So they didn't hit fully under the floor, but they just kind of, you know, like fell kind of softly, just to scare them a little bit. But the trust fall, as long as everybody has their arms flat, it should work perfectly. The trust fall is often used as as we talk about like these team-building exercises. They're supposed to teach you life values. They're supposed to teach you things about working together as a group. Um, and the trust fall is supposed to help us understand that we can, we can lean on other people 
We can trust in other people. Yet sometimes that metaphor doesn't translate into all areas of our life, does it not? Sometimes we have a hard time trusting in the people we are told we can trust. Maybe it's somebody's broken our trust. Maybe it's that, that we had difficulty growing up trusting others because of things that have happened. Um, so the metaphor doesn't always work. Yet I think as we look back at our scripture this morning, I think the trust fall is the perfect metaphor, the perfect illustration for discussing this scripture this morning and the nature of faith. As we turn back to our gospel lesson from Mark, we actually read this text last fall. We read it back in October in a series about family and about parent. We're talking about parenting. Um, but I thought this scripture was perfect for us too as we talk about the nature of faith. And one of the great things about the Bible, if you haven't figured this out yet, this is just one of the most beautiful things about God's word, is that every time you read it, God might be speaking something different, right? You can read the same text and read it all about parenting. And then you can read the same text and see that it actually tells you about the nature of faith. And we really, we focused in on Jairus last time, but this time I wanna focus in on the woman in this story, actually on both characters, and really talk about what, what faith means. And so as we enter into the text, Jesus is coming back across the Sea of Galilee into the Jewish region. He had come back, he was over in the Gentile territory. He came back over into more of his homeland territory. When he got out of the boat, there were thousands of people waiting to see him. They all wanted to be healed. They wanted to hear his teaching. They wanted to know all of his wisdom. And they were crowding in on him. It was like when Elvis showed up at a concert and everybody's waiting for him. And people are like, oh, sign my autograph. Sign my. Like, it was just the big, the king has arrived. It was just this big deal. And people are trying to touch him. And, and so all of a sudden he gets off the boat and there's this man named Jairus who's sitting there and he's a synagogue leader. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, my little girl, she's dying. Can you please come help? Can you, she, she, I know that you can, can you please come help? And he says, yes, just right off the bat. Yes, let's go. And on the way there, they're walking. And everybody, like the disciples are like his entourage, right? His bodyguards. They're like boxing people out, like make room for Jesus. I'm sure like, you know, you've got Matthew in front, like spreading the people, like watch out, watch out. And all of a sudden Jesus just stops. He stops walking. And he looks around and he says, who touched me? Right? If you're watching this story, you don't know about what's going on with the woman yet. If you're just observing, you're just seeing Jesus walking. He stops. Who touched me? And the disciple says, what do you mean who touched you? There are like hundreds of people trying to touch you. Of course people are touching you right now. Like you're in this big crowd. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Something just happened. And he paused and he looked around. And then this woman came in and she fell at Jesus' feet. And she confessed to him. She said, I, I touched you. I'm the one. Because you, and she she explained everything to Jesus. She, she said, you know, I have been sick for 12 for years. I have been bleeding. I've had hemorrhaging. I've, I have been gone to doctors and they have not been able to make me well. And she said, I just, I had faith that you could, if I could just touch your clothes, I knew I would be healed. I knew I'd be transformed. And so she did. And she, she just touched the hem of his robe, not his actual, not his body, not his feet, just the hem of his robe, and she was healed. And Jesus felt the power going out from him. He felt that something had just taken place. And she was terrified because she should have been rebuked for this, for touching a man, especially a man that's not her husband, for being out in this state of uncleanliness. You're not supposed to leave your home. 
If you are a woman and you are unclean, if you've been bleeding, if you've been, especially for 12 years, you're not supposed to be in society, you're not supposed to be in peace with everybody, you're supposed to be isolated. So she's out, she's out in public, she's in this crowd, she touches this man and then she speaks. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her at all. He says to her, he calls her daughter. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. And right when that happened, right after that happened, someone from Jairus' house came up and they told, don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter has died. She passed away. And Jairus is just broken. He's just, in his soul, you can, I'm sure you can just imagine how just lost he probably is in this moment. And Jesus probably knows that exact thing too. Because Jesus looks at him and says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And they went to the little girl's home. They went to Jairus' house. When they walked in, there's this, there's this, essentially this wake happening. Have you ever been to somebody's house after they've lost a loved one? And we've had a lot of that here lately. We're just, you're sitting in grief. You're grieving with a family. You're crying. Especially if someone has just lost their child. And Jesus walks in there and goes, why are y'all all crying? And they laugh at him like he's absurd. Like he has no idea what he's talking about. And he says, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And they still think he's crazy. And so he puts them all out of the house. And he takes the parents. And he takes Peter, James, and John. And they go back to where the little girl was. And he says to her, little girl, get up. And immediately, she's healed. Immediately, she is raised. Immediately, she sits up. And he says to to the parents, get her something to eat. And he orders them not to tell anyone what has happened. Now that part's called the messianic secret. And it's a different part for a different day. Maybe one day we'll do a series on the messianic secret of Mark. But what I want to point out about this story about these two stories is the way in which they speak to us about the nature of faith, how they help us understand what it means to be people of faith. The first thing that I hear in these stories, this story really presents to us, Jairus and this woman, is that their faith is their catalyst for transformation. Faith, and the same is true for you and for me, faith is the catalyst for transformation. See, oftentimes we think that um, we have to do things ourselves to be able to fix ourselves, that there's issues we have and we have to you know, work really, really hard. But before any of our own efforts, any of our own intentions can be worthwhile long-term, there has to be faith that leads us on the path to wholeness. As Christians, we believe it is God who makes us whole. It is God who helps us to be holy as God is holy. And without faith, we will constantly be journeying, looking for something absent in our lives. Faith is the catalyst. Jairus was a synagogue leader. He was a a person who was high up in Jewish leadership. The Jewish leaders did not like Jesus. They didn't like him at all. So Jairus not only was associating with an enemy, he had faith 
that this enemy could actually help. He had faith in Jesus that Jesus could transform his situation, could heal his daughter. He was willing to risk political career suicide because of his faith in Jesus. Willing to put everything he'd worked for on the side or in jeopardy because he had faith that Jesus could lead to this transformation. This faith was this foundation for the healing of his daughter. The same can be said for the woman. She risks being rebuked, being punished, being outcast. She could have even been stoned to death. And she puts all that on the line because she has faith, she has trust that Jesus can transform her life, can heal. Faith is the catalyst for transformation. It is the, the, the beginning of where healing takes place. But the second thing that this text helps us see is that faith is not synonymous with belief. Oftentimes we talk about faith as if it's proper belief. And we talk about faith as if like, if I just get things figured out. But the Bible doesn't really tell us that. The Bible doesn't say that faith is all about believing the right things. This story is a perfect example. When we think about faith, we often think, well, I've got to get things in right order. The more I have things figured out, the better faith I'll have. If I just believe the right things, then my faith will be strong, and I will be a good person, and I will be a better Christian if I just believe the things I'm supposed to believe. My small group, though, we just got done reading a book called The Sin of Certainty. It's a really great book. It's by Peter Enns. And in this book, Dr. Enns helps us think about the translation of the word faith from Greek to English. And oftentimes, the word pistis, faith, is better translated as trust instead of belief in the way we understand the explanation. And I want you to think about this. When you go to read the New Testament next time and you read the word faith, just kind of think of like if it was saying trust instead. Because when you change it from belief to trust, it takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? When you think about faith. Because when you think about faith as belief, you always get like what answers. Like what, what do you believe in? It's this objectification of ideas. It's this way of saying like, well, as long as your cerebral, your mental capacities are, are good enough, you, you can really get things figured out and then you'll have this perfect faith. But when you translate it to trust, when you think about it more as trust, it requires a relationship, doesn't it? You have to have something, some body to trust in. Faith as trust removes this implication that we can fix ourselves or be the best people possible if we just believe the right things. But when we have faith in God, we have faith, we have trust that God is God and that we are not. It transforms what faith can be in our lives. Think about it. If, if all that the, the woman did was believe that Jesus could heal her, just but stood off to the sidelines, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have mattered. That's, that's this third thing about faith. This text helps us realize that, that faith, when you have trust in God, it compels us to act. Faith compels us to act. It's this compulsion that leads us to do something. 
If faith is just in our minds, if faith is just a belief, then we can just sit on the sidelines and just think nice thoughts. But what if that woman had done that? Just had, oh, belief, Jesus can, can do stuff if Jesus wants to. I'm just gonna believe in Jesus. It was her trust in God, trust in Jesus, that compelled her to act, to go do something. The same can be said of Jairus. He left his daughter on her deathbed. I mean, I can't even imagine this. Like, she is sick. She is dying. I, if I thought of anywhere I needed to be in that moment, it would be to be by her side. But he had trust that Jesus could transform lives, that Jesus could heal. And he left her side and went. He moved, he acted, he did something because of this faith, because of this trust. It compelled him to act. The reason why I like that Rachel Held Evans video we watched earlier, because it reminds us that within faith, there is even room for doubt. Within faith, there's even room for doubt. Oftentimes, if, if faith is just about belief, just about right thinking, um, then there's not room for doubt. You can't doubt. It's not allowed. You got to get things figured out. But because our beliefs are in something we can never understand fully, God, we will constantly be working it out, trying to figure it out, journeying. But once we become certain and settled, we stop acting. We stop growing. We stop moving. It is the things that we do not understand that causes our faith to be even stronger. Because if you can't figure it out by belief, then you have to trust. And if you are fully trusting, then you are living into that faith. That faith that says, I don't have all the answers. That faith that says, I don't always understand what the Bible means when it says what it says. That faith that says, I've been struggling with these questions for all my life. That faith that says, you know what, I just, I don't get it. When we have the absence of certainty, we have the necessity to trust. We lean into God because we have to release ourselves. Remember the New Testament says, God, less of me and more of you. For God to be our all in all, we have to release our grip on certainty of belief and lean into a faith that is rooted in trust. But I will say this is not always easy. To wrap this up, this sermon, this idea about faith, there's a, a word that comes up in this text multiple times and throughout Mark that makes faith as trust even harder. And that's the word immediately. The word immediately comes up all the time in Mark. It was, he said, the woman touched his robe and immediately she was healed. Jesus told the girl, little girl, get up and immediately she got up. Our lives, are, especially now, I think, even more so, are built on immediate gratification, are they not? I mean, we got our cell phones that can give us the answer to any question on the Google machine. If we want food, it can be delivered to wherever we are. If we need to learn something or know something, we just type it in. Immediate gratification is just like, it's just part of our DNA. And maybe that's been the case for forever, but especially now. And so when the text says, well, Jesus heals immediately. And then in our own lives, we ask for healing. We say, God, we need help. We lean into trust. 
and immediately doesn't happen, it makes trust even harder. It makes us want to, to go back to belief, to, as the ultimate thing, right? Well, I just wasn't believing enough. If I had believed better than Jesus, then my faith would be stronger than Jesus would have healed me. Trust is really hard in seasons of difficulty, is it not? But I think of it like this. The word immediately might not always mean immediately in the way that we think about it. Because I think about my own life and how I wish I could hold on to each moment of goodness. We were on this trip this past two weeks and it was just every second I'm like, just life pause, do not move again. And I thought in those moments, pretty soon, I'm gonna be back at church. I'm gonna be preparing a sermon. I'm gonna be getting up there preaching. I'm gonna be talking. And this will feel like a distant memory. But in that moment, I, you're just there, right? But here I am now, and it feels like all that was a dream. Like, like it took place in a different lifetime. Even though it's just two weeks ago, right? In the past week and a half. I mean, a lot of our life is spent that way, looking, looking back. And so I do think that God can and does heal like in a moment. I think people have experienced that. I think that that is real. But oftentimes when I think of the transformation God has done in my life, it's that sense of immediately like Jairus probably experienced it. We don't know how long he left his daughter. We don't know how long he was sitting on the beach waiting for Jesus to show up on the boat. We don't know how long of a walk it was from the Sea of Galilee to his house. It might have felt like a lifetime for him. Could have been days. A lot of our lives, we are asking for transformation and healing going on day by day, and it's weeks, months, maybe even years later, we look back, and it feels like a lifetime ago that we started this prayer, but it also feels like it just happened right then. And when you are struggling, that is not necessarily comforting. I get that. I've experienced that myself lately, wanting immediate healing. But I think at times in life when we stop and we reflect, when we think about where we are compared to where we've been, we experience that God has been with us the whole time. And all of a sudden it feels like, man, that just happened immediately. That went by so fast. Here I am now. And so I pray that whatever's going on in your life, whatever you've been struggling with, whether it's trusting in God, whether it is seasons of difficulty, or if you're in a season of blessing now and everything is perfect, then when you go through a season of difficulty, which you will, I pray that in those times where you feel God is absent, you can trust. You can trust what the Bible says. You can trust that God is in relationship with us and says, God will never leave us, fail us, or forsake us. And that one day, I pray, you wake up and you feel like you were immediately transformed, that your situation was immediately healed, that everything was made immediately better, even if it had taken days, weeks, months, or even years. I pray that you remember that God is with you. I pray that your faith leads you not to just lean on your own understandings, but to trust him in all of his ways and let God direct your paths. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Will you pray with me as we come to the Lord's table?
Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for the times when we have failed to be an obedient church. Forgive us when we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us for joyful obedience to you, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen. At this time, I invite our communion.